Part two, chapter eight of Mushrooms on the Moor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Lillis. Mushrooms on the Moor by Frank W. Borum. Part two, chapter eight. The first mate. First officers are often worse than skippers, remarked the night watchman in Mr. W. W. Jacobs' light freights. In the first place, they know they ain't skippers, and that alone is enough to put em in a bad temper, especially if they've had their certificate a good many years and can't get a vacancy. I fancy there is something in the night watchman's philosophy, and I am therefore writing a word or two for the special benefit of first mates. I am half inclined to address it to first mates only, for to second mates, third mates, and other inferior officers I have nothing to say. But the first mate evokes our sympathy on the ground that the night watchman states so forcibly. First mates know they ain't skippers, and that alone is enough to put em in a bad temper. It is horribly vexatious to be next door to greatness. An old proverb tells us that a miss is as good as a mile. But like most proverbs, it is as false as false can be. A mile is ever so much better than a miss. I'm fond of cricket, and am president of a certain club. I invariably attend the matches, unless the house happens to be on fire. I have enough of the sporting instinct to be able to take defeat cheerfully, if the defeat falls within certain limits. It must not be so crushing as to be a positive humiliation, nor must it be by so fine a margin as to constitute itself a tantalization. Of the two, I prefer the former to the latter. The former can be dismissed under certain recognized forms. The glorious uncertainty of cricket, you say to yourself. It's all in the game, and the best side in the world sometimes has an off day. But if, after a great struggle, you lose by a run, you go home thinking uncharitable thoughts of the bowler who might have prevented the other fellow from making a certain boundary hit, of the wicket-keeper who might have saved a bye, or of the batsman who might easily have got a few more runs if he hadn't played such a ridiculously fluky stroke. To be beaten by a hundred runs is bad, but bearable. To be beaten by an innings and a hundred runs is humiliating and horrible. To be beaten by a single run is exasperating and intolerable." The same thing meets us at every turn. A few minutes ago I picked up The Life of Lord Randolph Churchill by his son. In the very first chapter there is a letter written by Dr. Creighton to the Duchess of Marlborough, commiserating her ladyship on the fact that Lord Randolph had been placed in the second class at the December examinations at Oxford. I must own, the bishop writes, quote, that I was sorry when I heard how narrowly Lord Randolph missed the first class. A few more questions answered, and a few more omissions on some of his papers, and he would have secured it. He was, I am told by the examiners, the best man who was put into the second class. And the great hardship is, as your grace observes, that he should be in the same class with so many who are greatly his inferior in knowledge and ability. It is rather tantalizing to think that he came so near. If he had been farther off, I should have been more content. End quote. Now that is exactly the misery of the first mate. He is so near to being a skipper, so very near. He even carries continually in his pocket the official papers that certify that he is fully qualified to be a skipper, and yet for all that he is not a skipper. Sometimes, indeed, he fancies that he will never be a skipper. It is very trying. I'm sorry, genuinely sorry for the first mate. What can I say to help him? Perhaps the thing that he will most appreciate is a reminder of the tremendous debt that the world owes to its first mates. I was reading the other day Dasent's great Life of Delane. Among the most striking documents printed in these five volumes are the letters that Delane wrote from the seat of war during the struggle in the Crimea to the substitute who occupied his own editorial chair in the office of the Times. And the whole burden of those letters is to show that England was saved in those days by a first mate. The admiral, he says in one letter, quote, is by no means up to his position. 
the real commander is Lyons, who is just another Nelson, full of energy and activity. End quote. Two days later, he says again, quote, nothing but the energy and determination of Sir E. Lyons overcame the difficulties and impossibilities raised by those who seem to have always a consistent objection to doing anything until their tomorrow shall arrive. All the credit is due to him, and to him alone, for our admiral never left his ship, which was anchored three miles from the shore, and contented himself with sending the same contingent of men and boats as the other ships. End quote. And writing again after the landing had been effected, Delane says, quote, Remember always that in the great credit which the success of this landing deserves, Dundas has no share. Lyons has done all. And this, in spite of discouragement such as a smaller man would have resented. Nelson could not have done better, and, indeed, his case at Copenhagen nearly resembles this. End quote. Here, then, is a feather in the cap of the first mate. He may often save a vital situation which, in the hands of a dilatory skipper, might easily have been lost. The skipper is skipper and knows it. He is at the top of the tree, and there remains nothing to struggle after. He is apt to rest on his laurels and lose his energy. This subtle tendency is the first mate's opportunity. The ship must not be lost because the skipper goes to sleep. Everything at such an hour depends on the first mate. Nor is it only in time of war and crisis that the first mate comes to his own. In the arts of peace, the self-same principle holds good. What could our literature have done without the first mate? And in the Republic of Letters, the first mate is usually a woman. It is only quite lately that women have, to any appreciable extent, applied themselves to the tasks and responsibilities of authorship. Until well into the 18th century, Mrs. Grundy scowled out of countenance any intrepid female who threatened to invade the sacred domain. In 1778, however, Mrs. Fanny Burney braved the old lady's wrath, published Evelina, and became the pioneer of a new epoch. One of these days, perhaps on the bicentenary of that event, the army of women who wield the pen will erect a statue to the memory of that courageous and brilliant pathfinder. When they do so, two memorable scenes in the life of their heroine will probably be represented in bas-relief upon the pedestal. The one will portray Mrs. Burney, hopeless of ever inducing a biased public to read a woman's work, making a bonfire of the manuscripts to which she had devoted such patient care. The other will illustrate the famous scene when Mrs. Burney danced a jig to Daddy Crisp round the great mulberry tree at Chessington. It was, her diary tells us, the uncontrollable outcome of her exhilaration on learning of the praise which the great Dr. Johnson bestowed upon Evelina. Quote, it gave me such a flight of spirits, she says, that I danced a jig to Mr. Crisp without any preparation, music, or explanation, to his no small amazement and diversion. End quote. Macaulay declared that Miss Burney did for the English novel what Jeremy Collier did for the English drama, and she did it in a better way. Quote, she first showed that a tale might be written in which both the fashionable and the vulgar life of London might be exhibited with great force and with broad comic humor, and which should yet contain not a single line inconsistent with rigid morality, or even with virgin delicacy. She took away the reproach which lay on a most useful and delightful species of composition. End quote. Prejudice, however, dies hard. And the same writer tells us in another essay that seventy years later some reviewers were still of the opinion that a lady who dares to publish a book renounces by that act the franchises appertaining to her sex, and can claim no exemption from the utmost rigor of critical procedure. But however strong may have been the prejudice against a woman becoming captain and taking her place upon the bridge, nobody could object to her becoming first mate, and it is as first mate that woman has rendered the most valuable service." 
a few like fanny burney and jane austen and charlotte bronte and george eliot may have become skippers but we could better afford to lose all the works of such writers than lose the influence which women have exerted over captains whom they served in the capacity of first mate it was a saying of emerson's that a man is entitled to credit not only for what he himself does but for all that he inspires others to do to no subject does this axiom apply with greater force than to this it would be a fatal mistake to suppose that the contribution of women to the republic of letters begins and ends with the works that bear feminine names upon their title pages our literature is adorned by a few examples of acknowledged collaboration between a man and a woman and only in very rare instances is the woman the minor contributor but in addition to these there are innumerable records of men whose names stand in the foremost rank among our laureates and teachers yet whose work would have been simply impossible but for the woman in the background from a host of examples that naturally rush to mind we may instance almost at random the cases of wordsworth carlyle and robert louis stevenson in the days of his restless youth when wordsworth was in danger of entangling himself in the military and political tumults of the time it was his sister who recalled him to his desk and pointed him along the road that led to destiny it is miss mason remarks quote, in moments such as this that men especially those who feed on their feelings become desperate and think and do desperate acts it was at this critical moment for wordsworth that his sister dorothy stepped into his life and saved him End quote. she soothed his mind the same writer says again banished from it both contemporary politics and religious doubts and infused instead love of beauty and dependence on faith and so she reawoke craving for poetic expression she in the midst of all preserved him still a poet made him seek beneath that name and that alone his office upon earth poor dorothy she accompanied her brother on more than half his wanderings she pointed out to him more than half the loveliness that is embalmed in his verses she suggested to him half of his themes as the poet himself confessed she gave me eyes she gave me ears and humble cares and delicate fears a heart the fountain of sweet tears and love and thought and joy yes the world owes more than it will ever know to the first mates as loyal and true and helpful as dorothy wordsworth the skipper stands on the bridge and gets all the glory but only he and the first mate know how much was due to the figure in the background think too of that bright spring day nearly fifty years ago now when a lady driving through hyde park to see the beauty of the crocuses and the snowdrops was seen to lurch suddenly forward in her carriage and a moment after was found to be dead it was a loss unspeakable in its intensity for carlyle mr mclean watt says in his monograph Quote, this woman was one of the bravest and brightest influences in his life though perhaps it was entirely true that he was not aware of his indebtedness until the veil of silence fell between End quote the skipper is never aware of his indebtedness to the first mate that is an essential feature of the relationship it is the glory of the first mate that he works without thought of recognition or reward glad if he can keep the ship true to her course and ever proud to see the skipper crowned with all the glory carlyle's debt to his wife is one of the most tragic stories in the history of letters in the ruined nave of the old abbey kirk the sage tells us quote, with the skies looking down on her there sleeps my little genie and the light of her face will never shine on me more i say deliberately her part in the stern battle and except myself none knows how stern was brighter and braver than my own End quote. and in stevenson's case the obligation was even more marked what a debt he owed to women one of his biographers exclaims quote, in his puny ailing infancy his mother and his nurse cummy had soothed and tended him 
in his troubled hour of youth he had found an inspirer consoler and guide in mrs stitwell to teach him belief in himself in his moment of failure and struggle with poverty and death itself he had married a wife capable of being his comrade his critic and his nurse we owe all the best part of stevenson's work to the presence by his side of a wife who possessed as sir sidney colvin testifies quote, a character as strong interesting and romantic as his own she was the inseparable sharer of all his thoughts the staunch companion of all his adventures the most open-hearted of friends to all who loved him the most shrewd and stimulating critic of his work and in sickness despite her own precarious health the most devoted and most efficient of nurses dorothy wordsworth jane carlyle and fanny stevenson are representatives of a great host of brave and brilliant women without whom our literature would have been poor indeed some day we shall open a pantheon in which we shall place splendid monuments to our first mates at present we fill our westminster abbeys with the statues of skippers but depend upon it injustice cannot last for ever some day the world will ask not only was this man great but also who made this man so great and when this old world of ours takes it into its head to ask such questions the day of the first mate will at last have dawned one other word ought to be said although it seems a cruel kindness to say it it is this there are people who succeed brilliantly as first mates but who fail ignominiously as skippers aaron is of course the classical example as long as moses was skipper and aaron first mate everything went well but moses withdrew for a while and then aaron took command Quote, and the lord said unto moses go thee down for thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of egypt have corrupted themselves they have turned aside quickly out of the way which i commanded them they have made a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereunto and said these be thy gods o israel which have brought thee out of the land of egypt as long i say as moses was skipper and aaron first mate aaron did magnificently but when aaron took command he was as dr white says quote, a mere reed shaken with the wind as weak and as evil as any other man those forty days that moses spent up on the mount brought out among other things both moses's greatness and aaron's littleness and weakness in a way that nothing else could have done up make us gods which shall go before us for as this moses we know not what has become of him and aaron went down like a broken reed before the idolatrous clamor of the revolted people End quote. the day of judgment depend on it will be a day of tremendous surprises and not least among its astonishments will be the disclosure of the immense debt that the world owes to its first mates and the first mates who never become skippers will in that great day understand the reason why and when they know the reason why they will be among the most thankful of the thankful it will be so much better for me to be applauded at the last as a good and faithful first mate than to have to confess that as skipper i drove the vessel on the rocks end of part two chapter eight of mushrooms on the moor 